Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 12, which can be found on page 959 in the Blue Bibles. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these things are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess 
gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. As we continue on in our sermon series from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, if you remember, we've already seen that the, the church there is, has been racked by several problems. Uh, there is division in the church. Uh, there's confusion over um, issues like marriage, food that's been sacrificed to idols. Uh, there's division around their behavior in public gatherings. And so uh, the church at Corinth wrote Paul a letter and it seems this letter had questions and even some objections to some of the things that he had taught them. And so that accounts for, as we go through the letter, for Paul sometimes sort of uh, seemingly at random intervals just changing the topic. It seems like he's going through their letter and sort of ticking off the questions they've asked or the statements they've made and addressing them. And so he's been dealing with the church's behavior in public gatherings. So we saw in chapter 11 uh, that he objects to the way they're expressing gender uh, in uh, their public gatherings. Uh, we saw uh, last week the way that they were treating one another uh, in their gatherings, particularly at the Lord's Supper, was um, being rebuked by Paul. Uh, now in, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul wants to talk to them particularly about spiritual gifts. It seems that some in the church were what we might call charismatics. These were people who were uh, practicing miraculous and impressive displays of the Holy Spirit's power. They were doing things like healing and speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it seems that there was another group in the church, we might call them the non-charismatics. These were people who had been gifted by the Holy Spirit in more mundane ways, we might say. They were gifted to do things like show hospitality and have mercy on people. And so this division, it seems, between charismatics and non-charismatics, between people who were, who were displaying sort of miraculous and impressive manifestations of the Spirit's presence, and people who were more ordinary in their spiritual gifts, it seems that this was creating a division in the church. It seems that the, the charismatics over here were thinking that they didn't really need these other people. And the, the non-charismatics, perhaps, were being tempted to think that they were useless because the Holy Spirit hadn't manifested himself in their lives in this particular way. They were somehow of lesser value to the congregation. It seems that maybe even there was some jealousy and suspicion uh, going in both directions in the church. And so Paul's answer in our passage for this morning is fairly direct. He says to the church, the differences between you are not a mistake. Rather, they represent the plan and the design of God. Uh, the plan is for a diversity of gifts among the members of the church to create unity in the body. And here in chapter 12 that Michael just read for us, I think Paul identifies for us three different sources of unity that God has provided to this fracturing church at Corinth and, and for our church as well. And so that's what I want to do this morning is just look at these three sources of unity that we see here in chapter 12. Now, the first thing we see is that the church has unity in its spirit-wrought confession. Look there in verses 1 to 3. Paul says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Paul reminds them of their past. Specifically there in verse 2, he reminds them that when they were pagans, they were led astray by mute idols. Back in chapter 8, this was a topic of discussion. Some members of the church were claiming that since idols don't really exist, they could eat the food that had been sacrificed to them. Uh, Paul points out here that they used to follow these idols, these mute idols, right, as a sort of in contrast to God's spirit who's speaking through them in tongues. They used to follow mute idols and were led astray by them. And so here in verse 1, Paul says he doesn't want them to be ignorant and uninformed. He says, now that you're Christians, I don't want you to be ignorant like you were when you were a pagan. Uh, Paul uses this expression when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. He uses that in a lot of his different letters. And it usually means that he's about to introduce uh, something very basic, something that he's already sort of gone over with them. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of foundational truth of Christianity. And here he wants to make sure that they're not uninformed about matters relating to the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure that they're not still ignorant like they were when they used to follow mute idols. Paul says there, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. Uh, that word spiritual gifts is the Greek word pneumatikon. Uh, literally, it means spirit things or spirit stuff. It's not a term that Paul uses very often. And so most scholars think that actually this is a phrase that the Corinthians were using in their letter, that Paul's using that word because it's, kind of a, it's not a word Paul uses very often. That we think that Paul's actually quoting from their letter to kind of introduce the topic. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul moves on from that word. He doesn't really use that word spirit stuff anymore. Uh, the rest of the chapter, he uses the word charisma, uh, gifts of love. Uh, so whatever he means by that word, there in verse 3, Paul wants to show the Corinthians that anyone who is a Christian has unity with other Christians in their spirit-wrought confession of Jesus as Lord. There in verse 3, Paul gives us two data points. First, he says, no one who's speaking in the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. That seems clear enough. God the Spirit would never lead anyone to curse God the Son. The second thing Paul tells us is that no one confesses that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit is, is working in him, unless he's actively being led by God's Spirit. Now, I think most of us read that, and we kind of see it that Paul's giving us a litmus test here. Uh, Paul's giving us a way that we can evaluate and distinguish between true spirits and false spirits, right? If it says Jesus is Lord, it must be a true spirit. If it says Jesus is accursed, it must be a false spirit. But I don't think that's actually what Paul's trying to do here. Rather, I think Paul's trying to give them a, a larger principle that will help build unity in the church, See, theirs was a world without what we might call nominal Christians. So after 2,000 years of geographical spread and cultural and political ascendancy, there are a lot of people in our world who might think of themselves as Christians. People who might even say with their mouths, Jesus is Lord, but don't really have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Right? It's always amazing 
at Christmas time. How many people who have no interest whatsoever in Christ will sing at the top of their lungs, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, right? People say things they don't mean all the time when it comes to Christianity. But back then, in first century Corinth, this kind of confession, Jesus is Lord, would have to be motivated by God's Holy Spirit. In those days, being a Christian was not an admirable or respectable thing. Right? If you said Jesus is Lord, you could end up dead. Right? Gentiles wouldn't like you because they were polytheistic. Who are you to say your God is the ultimate Lord? Jews wouldn't like you because they didn't worship Jesus. They didn't recognize him. They didn't understand how God could be three persons. And, and you see throughout the book of Acts, the Jews and Gentiles were not shy about persecuting Christians when they said Jesus is Lord. So the only thing that could actually make you say that would be the power of God's Spirit changing your heart and opening your eyes to see that, in fact, Jesus is Lord. There is no other incentive. There's no other reason. Now, why does that matter to the church at Corinth? Well, if there is, in fact, this growing conflict between the factions there, if you have the charismatics over here who are speaking in tongues and performing miracles and healing and prophesying, and you've got the non-charismatics over here with their more sort of ordinary gifts of the Spirit, and they're both suspicious of one another, right? The charismatics might say to the, the others that, look, if you have God's Spirit like you say you do, then you'll be able to speak in tongues like us. You'll be able to heal and do miracles like us. You say you have God's spirit, but, but do you really? And the non-charismatics over here might be looking at these people saying, look, all that, all that speaking in tongues is nonsense. Maybe it's even demonic. How do we even know what it is you're saying? Right? The truly spiritual people are people like us, those who are calm and under control. Right? You see how that fractures the unity of the church. Right? We... We, have, we see a similar impulse today, I think, amongst Christians to, to look down on people who, who are different in churches that do things differently. But, but here's what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth and to us. He's saying, look, you non-charismatics, relax. All right? No one speaking in the Spirit of God is going to say Jesus is cursed. So you don't have to worry about it. If that person is speaking in tongues by the Spirit of God, they're never going to utter something blasphemous. Right? It's all, it's all right. If they have the Spirit of God, it's okay. And look, you charismatics, back off. Your brother or sister who doesn't speak in tongues, they have the Holy Spirit every bit as much as you do. How do you know? How can you be sure? Well, they confess that Jesus is Lord. And only the Holy Spirit could lead someone to do that. So there's unity in the church in the common confession that we have as Je that Jesus is Lord. That functions within the church, and I think it's also a principle that we can, as a congregation, apply to other churches as we pray for other congregations that meet around this area, as we think about churches all around the world. Those churches might do things differently than we do. Uh, those churches might have different practices than we do, but if they confess that Jesus is Lord, if they believe the same gospel that we believe, then we have a unity with them because they have the same Holy Spirit that we have. So this confession wrought by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord uh, creates unity in the church. Uh, the second thing, I think, this leads us naturally into the second source of our unity, and that is uh, we have a sovereignly ordained diversity. 
we have unity in our sovereignly ordained diversity. Look there in verses 4 to 11. Paul says this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In the Greek that Paul was writing in, verse 4 uh, starts off with a strong adversative, right? The ESV renders it no, now, but, but really it's like, it's like, but, but, hold on, right? Having said all of that in verse 3, uh, Paul wants to flip the other side of the coin and say, look, we have great unity in our common confession, but, however, on the other hand, that does not mean that the spirit who empowers one common confession in all of us will empower us for service in exactly the same ways. Paul uses a few different words here to describe what it is that he's talking about. He calls them gifts there in verse 4. He calls it service in verse 5. He calls it activities in verse 6. In verse 7, he calls them manifestations of the Spirit. Right? As I mentioned earlier, the word that Paul uses here in verse 4 is different than the word he uses back in, in verse 1. In verse 1, he uses the Corinthians word, uh, pneumaticon. Here he uses the word uh, charisma. Uh, he's not talking about spirit things anymore, but he, he says, let's talk about grace things, gifts of God's grace. That word charisma that Paul uses here in verse 4, when he says there's varieties of gifts, it's a word that Paul uses in lots of different contexts. In Romans 1, he uses it to describe the mutual encouragement that Paul gets from the, uh, and wishes to give to the church. In Romans 6, he uses this word to talk about our salvation, a gift of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 1, it's the, the sort of special favor that Paul received from the church when they prayed for him in a time of danger. Uh, back in chapter 7, we saw uh, the, the, the gift of celibacy and the gift of marriage. Uh, used, Paul uses the same word, charisma. So it's not a technical term. I, I point all that out because we sometimes talk about spiritual gifts as they're these sort of like... Uh, technical terms for, for things and that you can sort of uh, think about them as these sort of discrete units. Uh, sometimes we even like, when I was a kid, you filled out a Scantron, you know, to see what your spiritual gift was. Now I realize you probably take a, an internet survey, right? Uh, this word gift can really be used to describe any gracious activity of God. And so here Paul's talking about God's gracious activity of giving us uh, activities, things to do, services, abilities uh, that we can use to serve the church. There in verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on to list out what some of these gifts or activities or services or manifestations of the Spirit might be. So I just want to walk through them very briefly. Um, I, I do want to point out I'm not going to talk about prophecy, speaking in tongues, or being an apostle until chapter 14. Uh, you just simply, we, we can't talk about it in chapter 12 without referencing chapter 14. So instead of going back and forth between the two constantly, I'm just going to put a pin in those ideas now, punt on them for today, 
pray that Jesus comes back in the next two weeks. <laughs> and if not, then in chapter 14, we will look at those things. So, uh, just briefly walking through these gifts, skipping over those, uh, those few gifts that come back up in, in chapter 14. There in verse 8, he says that some people receive the utterance of wisdom. Uh, others, he says, an utterance of knowledge. Uh, those things are not defined for us. It seems like they have something to do with the ability to bring spiritual truth to bear in a helpful way. The emphasis there seems to be on utterance, the ability, the ability to give voice to, to helpful ideas and wise thoughts so that others can benefit from them. Uh, there in verse 9, he says, others receive the gift of faith. Uh, this can't be saving faith because we know that, that every Christian has faith, that we're united to Christ uh, by faith. Uh, it seems more like this is the kind of unusual and remarkable certainty that, that the Spirit of God has revealed something to you. Right? You probably know people like this who just, who just seem to have a sort of spirit-wrought confidence in what God's about to do. Uh, you might think of, uh, in history, George Mueller of Bristol, who famously started orphanages all throughout uh, England without any, any sort of advanced money. He would just f- sort of fundraise on the day. Uh, he would take each day as it was and just trust God would provide what they needed. When things were bleak, when the orphanages were about to run out of food, he would simply keep praying and trusting that the Lord would provide. And, it seemed, and the Lord always did. Right? It seems that, 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 that that's sort of an extraordinary gift of faith, to trust the Lord uh, beyond what seems to be normal. Others there in verse 9, the end, uh, receive gifts of healing. Right? This is the ability to bring the Lord's healing power to bear on those in need. Right, the, the, the plural there in verse 9, uh, the gifts of healing, seem to imply that there's sort of a variety or diversity, different kinds of gifts of healing. Right, perhaps some people can heal one problem and others can heal another. We know that Paul was able to heal some people. So in Acts chapter 14, he, he heals a lame man. In Acts 19, uh, he heals the, the young man who falls out of the window. But we also know that he wasn't able to heal others. So, for example, he writes to Timothy and, and tells him to drink some wine for his stomach ailment. Uh, apparently, Paul couldn't heal that. Right? In Philippians, we're told uh, that Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death, uh, presumably because Paul couldn't heal him. Uh, so, as we understand gifts of healing, they're not some sort of monolithic mechanical gift that makes you a kind of super doctor. Right? So when the, the televangelists... Uh, get up and they promise to heal whatever it is uh, that, that's wrong with you if you just send them money, right? Or if somebody has a big sort of tent revival and brings people up and, and heals everyone, either they're more gifted than the Apostle Paul themselves or more likely they're frauds. But the Bible does speak about a genuine gift of healing, gifts of healing uh, that allow people to minister God's healing power. There in verse 10, uh, others receive power to perform miracles seems to be the ability to maybe drive out spirits or do natural miracles. Uh, the, the phrase translated there is, as miracles, it's literally workings of power. Uh, it's the same word that used in verse 6 where it says uh, that God empowers everyone. Right? We're supposed to be reminded, I think, that, that these sort of workings of power are in fact God's power. He's the one doing the work. There in verse 10, we're told that others are gifted in distinguishing between spirits. Right? We might think of this as something like discernment the ability to distinguish between the promptings of the Holy Spirit and, and falsehoods. 
Uh, in verse 28, which we haven't read yet, but uh, Paul adds two more gifts. He talks about helping and administration. Uh, seem to be fairly straightforward. Now, this list that Paul gives here is not in any way exhaustive. Uh, if you look at the other sort of lists in other letters in the Bible, there's probably 20 or 21 different sort of gifts that are mentioned. And, I, and as I said earlier, I'm not sure we're supposed to think of them as very discrete categories. There's a lot of overlapping. Uh, healing sounds a lot like a kind of miracle. Both of those would require faith, I think. But, but I don't think we're meant to sort of focus in too much on, on each one of these gifts in particular. Uh, in fact, Paul doesn't really explain them because it seems that he understands or expects that the church will know what he's talking about. Uh, he assumes his readers are familiar with all these gifts. The reason why he lists them out here is not so that we can sort of make a list and take a spiritual gift inventory online and figure out what our gifts are. But rather, he's making a larger point about the role that gifts play why it is that God has ordered and ordained his church to, to work in this way. And so before we sort of move on to that larger point, let me just point out three things about these gifts. First, what we see here is that these gifts, they create a kind of diversity in the church. Paul stresses there that every member of the church has a gift. He says in verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. But there's no one gift that everyone has in common. No one gift is given to all believers. So if you look down at verses 29 to 30, uh, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Right? The answer clearly is meant to be no. Every believer is gifted in some way, with some manifestation of the Spirit's power. But there's no one particular gift that's given to every believer. And so in the membership of a church, you will have differences and diversity. Uh, secondly, uh, these differences are sovereignly ordained by God. Uh, look there in verse 11, where Paul Sort of after this whole section of saying there's, there's a diversity of gifts, but one God, here in, in verse 11, he brings it to a conclusion. He says, all these, speaking of the various gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, in verse 18, we read, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And then again in verse 28, we're told of the various offices and gifts that God has appointed in the church. And then he, he lays out the different offices. So brothers and sisters, this diversity in the church is what God wants. It's not an accident and it's not a problem. It is this way because of God's sovereign intention. We're not told explicitly why it is that God orders things this way, but but we can observe that this creates a dynamic in the church that seems to reflect something of the character of God himself. Right? We know that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, there in verses 4 to 6, Paul mentions each one of those persons. I think he wants us to be thinking about these gifts in Trinitarian terms. In, in verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, right? That is the Lord Jesus. 
There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, that is God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. Our gifts come from a God who has great unity in diversity. And so our unity in the church, in, in, in light of our diversity, reflects the nature of God himself. Right? It really is quite like God to do things this way. Right? Someone once said that people make ice cubes and God makes snowflakes. Right? Or that when dictators want harmony, they enforce conformity. But when God wants harmony in his church, he actually makes us all different. Our differences are ordained by God. Third thing to notice about these gifts, notice that they've been given for a purpose. There in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit so that we will have something to argue about. No, no, it doesn't actually say that, believe it or not. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every believer has been gifted by the Spirit in order that you might employ your Spirit-given ability for the common good of the church. Our gifts are not for our own personal glory and benefit, right? When we treat them that way, that creates division. Instead, our, our gifts... Are, are meant to be used to edify and to unite. They're meant to lift our gaze up off of ourselves and to give us God-ordained tools for looking out for the needs of others. You can see how that kind of diversity, where we've been empowered in different ways to serve one another in different ways, you can see how that builds unity in a congregation, right? So if you're a follower of Christ, I wonder if you do have a sense of how it is that God has gifted you for service. I think the best way to figure that out is to, to look up and, and ask, how is it that you might be used to build the church? Where do you see a need or a weakness? In my experience, people are usually sort of most sort of quick to point out a weakness or, or they, they see something wrong in the area where they're gifted, right? God has wired you to, to see a problem and he's gifted you to fix it. So if you come up and make an observation about something in the church that could be better, I'm probably gonna encourage you to fix it, right? God has obviously given you a gift for this, right? Just ask even, what are you interested in? What, what, what are you passionate about, right? When, when you hear about a certain kind of need in the church, is there something in you that says, yes, I, I wanna help with that? Are people blessed when you serve in a certain kind of way? Now, our, our gifts aren't meant to be a limit. They're not meant to be something we use selfishly. Like, ah, eh, I, I know they need help in the nursery, but that's eh, not my gift, right? We, we don't use our gifts as a way of refusing to serve the body, right? Uh, sometimes a need just needs to be addressed by someone. Uh, but these gifts can be an encouragement to be more involved in serving your brothers and sisters in the church. Uh, remember that you've been given this gift for a purpose. And so you are a steward of it. It's been given to you in trust. You've been given tools to help build this church. And so don't sit back and leave it unused. Now, I realize for some, this might mean the beginning by, by making a commitment to a local church. So if you're a serial attender, 
Or if you're just someone who, who says you follow the Lord but, but have never been involved in a particular local church, I think the first step for you in obeying this passage is to actually join yourself to a local congregation. If you're a Christian, this one, we'd love to have you. If for some reason you can't join this church, that's fine. You need to go find one that you can join. You need to be connected to a body so that you can be using your spirit-wrought gifts to edify it and build it up and so that others can be using their gifts to help you. And if you are a member of this church, again, how can you use your gifts? Don't simply wait for someone to ask you. This is something you can pursue actively. There in verse 31, Paul tells us, earnestly desire the best gifts. Not for yourself, not so that you can be the guy with the best gifts, but so that you can benefit the church. Right? That, I think, ought to be the posture of our hearts. We ought to be earnestly praying, Lord, give me gifts, help me, Spirit, empower me so that I can serve my brothers and sisters even better. And that brings us, I think, to our third thing to see this morning, the third source of our unity, and that is our, our spirit baptism into one body. Uh, look there in verse 13 where we read, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul gives us two word pictures here to sort of describe our unity. He talks about being baptized in the spirit. He says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Paul says we were all. So anyone who's in Christ. So regardless of ethnicity or social status, it doesn't matter if you're, he says, a Jew or a Greek, if you're a slave or free, he says we were all baptized in one and the same Holy Spirit. And that fact serves to unite us. That makes us one body. The reference here seems to be the Holy Spirit's work of bringing us out of spiritual death and uniting us to Christ. Right at the time of our conversion, the Spirit unites us to Christ and makes us part of his body, the church. Right? That's why he says you're baptized into one body. When you're baptized in water, so when we break out the creaky old coffin and we fill it up with water over there, right, and you, you get dunked in it, it's an, it's an outward picture that this inward spiritual baptism has, has happened, that you've been included into Christ. It's the way you actually join this local congregation, right, by being baptized. Now, just as a side note, some more Pentecostal and charismatic traditions understand this baptism in the Holy Spirit as a kind of second blessing, something that Christians experience later in life that allows them to speak in tongues particularly. But I would just point out that doesn't fit the data here. right? We know that not all believers in Corinth were speaking in tongues. Paul makes that clear in verse 30. But here we're told that all believers had experienced this baptism in the Spirit. So everyone is baptized in the Spirit if you're in Christ. Not everyone speaks in tongues. Uh, the other word picture here that Paul uses is that we were all made to drink of one Spirit. This seems to point towards the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, that we've, we've internalized him, as it were. So in, in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as rivers of living water flowing out of us. In Romans chapter 5, he, Paul speaks of the Spirit pouring God's love into us. 
Right? It seems like that's something of the idea here, that we've all drunk deeply from the Spirit's presence and work in our lives, and that, that creates one body. The emphasis here is on, on the word all and the word one. All of us, Jews and Greeks, free and slave, all of us have been baptized into one spirit. There's not a different spirit for Jews and a different one for Greeks. There's not a spirit for free and a spirit for slaves. There's not a different spirit for black and white, for liberal and conservative, rich and poor, male and female. Paul says all of us have the exact same spirit. We've been made into one body in the local church. And Paul moves on from that point to unpack what it means for the church actually to be the body of Christ. In verse 12 he says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You understand sort of intuitively that your body is one body, but it's composed of of many different members. And that all of your members, though they're separate, only have one body together. And Paul says it's, it's just like that in the church. In verse 13, he tells us how that happens through the baptizing ministry of the Spirit, making us one body. And then in verse 14, he applies that truth to the disunity that the Corinthians have been experiencing. He says that this truth has implications for our life together. Let me just point out four things about what Paul says here in this section. First, because we've been baptized into one body, it means that we're connected to one another. There in verses 15 and 16, it says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So if you are in Christ, you've been baptized by the Spirit into the body. There is no other plan or program. You are part of the body. We are connected to one another spiritually. Uh, The only question is whether you're living like it or not. Uh, The New Testament really doesn't have a category for a Christian who's not concerned with and engaged in a local church. So there is one sense in which all Christians in all places and all times are the body of Christ. But but that body of Christ, that church, will only meet in eternity, right? We'll all gather together around the throne on the last day. Until then... The body of Christ, as we live it out, is is this local church or whatever local church it is that you're a part of. The New Testament really doesn't have a category for a Christian who's not engaged and connected to and part of a local church where you can live out this body life. In a similar vein, this means because we're connected to each other, the second thing is that we need each other. Look there in verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. God has made it so that we are dependent. We are not self-sufficient. We need one another. There in verse 17, we see we need all of the parts of the body. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Christian, you need your brothers and sisters in the church. You need the church family. You need the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to others. And the rest of the body needs you and the gifts that you've been given. Again, I just want to point out it makes no sense to try and live the Christian life apart from being involved in a local church 
where you can use these gifts and enjoy the benefit of the gifts that God's given to others. Third thing it means, that means that we care for one another. Look there in verse 26. There's this beautiful um, statement. Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Isn't that true? If you've been part of a church, isn't, isn't that the case? Our lives are entwined together. When, when one suffers, all suffer. I felt this acutely this week. I, I've got news from several uh, different uh, members of the church about, about really sad things that happened. And, and I just found myself just overwhelmed with sadness for a while. Right? And I thought, well, that's, that's actually the beauty of what Paul's talking about here. Like, I actually care about them as if, almost as if it were happening to me. Paul says here, when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. Right? When you smash your thumb with a hammer, you don't, you don't always just say, well, I, I smashed the very tip of my thumb. You say, I hurt myself, right? Your, your whole body feels that pain. It's not, it's not contained to just the tip of your thumb. When, when one part of our body hurts, we all suffer. Uh, we're so connected to one another that it creates sympathy and care. I think about how beautiful that is. How, how kind of the Lord to make us part of a body like this. Right? Who wouldn't want to live in a community where other people care about you so much that your joy is their joy? Who wouldn't want to live in a church family where people care so much that your suffering and your difficulty feels to them like, like their own? I wonder if this is how you think about your brothers and sisters in the church. Do you, do you love them so much? Do you see your connection to them in Christ so clearly that you would weep with them or celebrate with them? Do you pray for the needs of others as earnestly as you pray for your own? Do you pray for them like, like they're part of the same body as you? There at the end of verse 25, Paul tells us that God has arranged us together this way in a body, he says, for this purpose, so that we may have the same care for one another. The fourth thing, this means that we honor one another. If you look there, verse 22 to the beginning of verse 25, it says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Some of the Corinthians didn't have spectacular, flashy gifts. And so they were jealous. They were tempted to conclude that the church didn't need them. Maybe these were the feet and the ears that Paul's talking about back in verses 15 and 16. And on the flip side of the coin, those who had more powerful or spectacular gifts seemed to be looking down on others in the church. But that also is ridiculous. So here Paul reminds them of the particular care that we take for parts of our body that might not seem presentable. The weakest parts of our body, Paul reminds them, oftentimes turn out to be the most important. Right? Think about your own physical body. Right? There are lots of parts that are small or weak, but completely essential to the functioning and the health of the entire system. In fact, we, we go to great lengths to protect those parts or to preserve them. Paul says, so it is with the church. We honor, we celebrate the gifts that have been given to others. 
because we know that they're all necessary. We know that they've all been given by the Holy Spirit, and we know that they all should be used to build up the church. God has designed it this way with this incredible diversity so that there be unity and love and care amongst the members of the church. So in this passage, we see three sources of unity. Our spirit-wrought confession that Jesus is Lord, our sovereignly ordained diversity of gifts, and our spirit baptism into one body. And brothers and sisters, I think as always, the first application of any passage of scripture is, is to come to the Lord's table in faith, to commune with him, to celebrate his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, so that we might be brought into his family, so that we may, might be part of his body, so we might commune with one another in faith. I hope you see the larger picture here. There in verse 27, Paul says something amazing. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He says, you, plural, are the body of Christ. And you, singular, are individual members of that body. Sterling Park Baptist Church, you are the body of Christ. And you, the individual hearing my voice, are a member of it. Right? That local church in Corinth, our local church in Sterling Park, is the body of Christ. Sterling Park Baptist Church is meant to be an exemplification, an expression of Christ's body. What a wonderful high calling for us. We may not seem impressive or important to the world. People drive by on Church Road or on York Road and, and pay no notice to this little building, and that's fine because God has given us such an amazing and wonderful honor. You, as an individual member, use your gifts to build up Christ's body. What a lovely thing it is that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. There in verse 12, Paul's talking about the church, uh, and he says uh, in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is, he says, listen, he says, so it is with Christ. That's not what you're expecting him to say. You're expecting him to say, so it is with the church. But, but here, Paul understands that Jesus identifies so intimately with the church that he can say, so it is with Christ. That when he's talking about the church, he can just use the word Christ. Right? That's how much Jesus loves us. We're not just a body. We're his body. When God the Father set his love on us, when the Holy Spirit baptized us into Christ, we became part of something wonderful and enduring and glorious. And so Christian, this is your identity. This is who you are. Again, that might seem insignificant to the people around you. You might feel like you've failed to reach your potential or make a mark in the world. But in reality, Paul says here that you are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, an indispensable and glorious part of the most important thing in the universe, the body of Christ. And so let's celebrate that truth together at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what good news we see in this passage, that you in your love would send your Son to die for us, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us to so unite us, 
to the Lord Jesus that we can be his body. Spirit, we rejoice in the gifts that you've given us. We rejoice in the confession that you've put on our tongues. And we ask that you would help us to love one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, to honor one another. So there might be unity in this particular local body. And so that we might bring great glory to Christ and experience great joy in being his people. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.